0: When we look out at the universe, we see all around us, in every direction we look, there are not only stars within the Milky Way, but galaxies that lie beyond it. How many of them are there? What are they like? Are they similar or different to our own? How did they form? How did they grow up? What were they like in the ancient past, and how did they get to be the way they are today? For a long, long time, these were questions that we weren't sure what the answers to them were. But today, we know that galaxies started out small with hot young blue stars and eventually merged, evolved, and became this wide diversity of types of galaxies we see today, from the small spheroidal galaxies to the spiral galaxies to giant elliptical galaxies and strange, weird-looking, irregular galaxies. We've discovered that there are approximately 2 trillion galaxies contained within the observable universe, and yet, when we look back at the earliest ones, there are still mysteries yet to uncover. What are they like? How did they grow up to be the way they are today? And what are we going to learn in the coming years with new telescopes and observatories coming online? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. It was only approximately a century ago that we discovered our very first galaxies beyond the Milky Way. Fast forward another century, and now we're looking back to the earliest moments in cosmic time, and we hope in the next few years to reveal, if possible, the very first galaxies of all. And here to help us untangle this mystery, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program PhD candidate and Ford Fellow at the University of California, Irvine, Ariana Long, Ariana is about to graduate with her PhD, specializing in massive galaxies, how they form, grow, and die, and will soon be a Hubble Fellow at the University of Texas at Austin. Ariana, I'm so pleased to have you here and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Ethan. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's my absolute pleasure to have you on. You know, one of the things that I was most looking forward to. Uh, as soon as I honestly heard about the planning of James Webb, well before it launched, uh, well before it arrived at L2, and well before it began calibrations with an eye towards the uh, wonderful science operations that are slated to begin this summer, was this idea that we could overcome the limits of the Hubble Space Telescope. Can you tell us what Hubble has taught us about the galaxies in the universe, and why it hasn't been able to teach us everything we'd want to know.
1: Oh, yes. So uh, first I want to preface by saying I love Hubble. Um, Hubble has done so much for the community. I've used Hubble in my research. um, And so Hubble has done, uh, I mean, more than we can really even put into words. Um, So I want to give a shout out to that team before we talk about, you know, its shortcomings. Um, So some of the things that we've learned with Hubble uh, really kind of center on galaxy evolution for the majority of the universe, if if we're talking about um, my field and my area. Um, So understanding uh, that galaxies undergo mergers and that that merger fraction, that instance or the rate of mergers, is actually more frequent than maybe we had previously thought. Um, Understanding that dust uh, is kind of sometimes clumpy in some galaxies, sometimes spread out smoothly in other galaxies. So understanding the distribution of dust and how that impacts our observations, um, that is something that Hubble has helped with. Um, and Hubble has pushed back pretty far back in uh, in time, um, up to, I believe, a few hundred million years um, post-Big Bang to help us identify some of the first galaxies. But really, at the end of the day, um, Hubble was built a long time ago, and so it has the same kind of technological uh, limitations um, that you would expect for something built a few decades ago. Um, and so some of those that we're going to overcome with James Webb and really excited about really kind of come down to the resolution and the sensitivity. Um, so Hubble can only resolve something um, so large. And by resolve, I mean we get the nice detail of the galaxy, you know, maybe the spiral arms, um, maybe some clumps of stars. And so with Hubble, we could do that with a lot of closer galaxies and maybe some intermediate-distance galaxies, but really the further we pushed away, the further we pushed uh, the telescope to its limitations. And so with James Webb, we're really, really hoping to actually get way more uh, structure resolved, um, and then the sensitivity part, too. Hubble uh, can only get so much light, capture so much light with its light bucket, so to speak, the mirror. And with Webb, we're going to be able to capture even more light uh, which means we can get fainter objects that uh, emit emit less light over time.
0: I mean, I think I think that's a wonderful thing to emphasize because when we when we think about what's out there in the universe, one of the things that I've said before, and I'll say it again now because I think it's particularly relevant, is that we shouldn't underestimate, what Hubble has shown us, because Hubble has, in a very real sense, shown us what the universe looks like. I love the fact that you emphasize that there isn't, like, a normal galaxy out there like you can't look at a galaxy and be like that's what a normal galaxy looks like galaxies come in a wide diversity and variety of sizes masses uh shapes which is what we call morphologies types they contain various populations of stars and hubble has shown us uh for the nearby galaxies you know pretty much everything we can see But as you said, as we look farther and farther away, we're sort of limited in two ways. One is by the size of Hubble's primary mirror, what we call its aperture, because that tells us what the resolution is. So if we look farther and farther away, you know, we're basically gonna see a galaxy as fewer and fewer pixels on the sky, so we can resolve less of the fine features that are inside but another way that Hubble is fundamentally limited is in terms of wavelength. As we look farther and farther away, we're also looking back in time. So we're looking farther away. That's more light years away, which means the light from those distant objects has to travel for longer periods of time. And as it travels, We have to remember the universe is expanding, so the more it travels, the more the wavelength of that light gets stretched, and at some point Hubble, which can see from the ultraviolet into the near-infrared, the light that we're trying to see, the light emitted by stars, gets stretched so that less and less of it is available for Hubble to observe. And I think those two fundamental limitations have really, uh, although we've been able to see so remarkably much, uh, those have really been the two fundamental limitations to Hubble that we haven't been able to overcome. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I, I think, again, there's going to be so much opportunity for uh, some, you know, symbiotic research Um, for the lower redshift universe, but at the end of the day, for the early, early universe, we really do need an entirely new telescope. Um, And so I think together, Webb, um, Hubble, and then, of course, many other multi-wavelength telescopes will be able to stitch together this picture um, that we've never really understood before, and I fully anticipate there to be some surprising results in that.
0: I mean that's that's the dream isn't it whenever you look where you've never looked before uh you you know where some of the gaps are these are like the known unknowns you know that okay if i see big galaxies today and then i look back and i can only see the biggest brightest galaxies that existed back then i know just like we have small galaxies today that there were going to be smaller fainter galaxies back in the early universe that I haven't been able to see just yet. So I know I'm going to be able to find those things. But I don't know. uh, I don't know what's out there that I don't know to expect. Do you I I know this is early in the podcast to be asking for such speculations. But do you have any sort of hunches or? dream observations that might come in where you're like, you know what I would really love to be able to find out there in the universe, and you know what I think we're going to be able to see if it exists? Do you have any things like that that you're, oh wow, I just am salivating for this data, and if I could get my hands on it, this is what I really hope is out there and I'm able to find.
1: I think for for me and for a lot of the community um, that a lot of it comes down to the the chicken-of-the-egg of galaxy formation Um, essentially we know that gas needs to kind of condense and coalesce to create stars stars go supernova and you know spew a bunch of material back into space and then over time that cycle kind of repeats right but really in the beginning there's a lot of debate and and not (laughs) lack of clarity and understanding well okay If the gas coalesces and a star forms, and the gas has to be maybe a certain density for it to be not totally blown away, so that way when the star is done forming, another star can form. But what is that density, or is that even possible? Um, So understanding the chicken and the egg of, could galaxies, the first galaxies, really kind of be going through this sputtering process, this kind of like start and stop process? Or is it really all sufficiently dense and perfectly primed in these conditions, to just kind of pop off and create a galaxy um, that kind of sustains itself from the the jump. So that is something that I am personally very curious about, um, especially because the further back in time that we look, the more kind of gas-dominated we see uh, galaxies are, meaning that they're they're baryonic makeup, so all of the matter um, in in the galaxy, other than the dark matter, uh, tends to be dominated by gas instead of stars. And then later through time, as the gas turns into stars, um, you see the the fraction kind of flip. It's mostly stars and, and less gas. Um, but really in the beginning, that really gas-rich universe um, is so perplexing. We really don't understand much. And, and that goes from sm- small physics to large astrophysics and cosmology. I mean, everything from understanding the actual physics of radiation and star formation all the way up to understanding how the universe was ionized um, from this neutral medium, the epoch of reionization. Um, this sort of beginning galaxy process is super perplexing, um, and I don't really have any personal hunches. I have some, some thoughts, I guess, about you know, gas-rich environments um, and, and theories about massive galaxies in particular, which we can get into a bit later. Um, But in general, that's the big question mark that I think myself and many, many people are excited to learn about.
0: You know, I think that's that's a huge thing to be able to discover. You know, one of the things that I that I've thought of a number of times is, you know, okay, it's easy to say with James Webb, we're going to do something like take. Uh, an analog of either a Hubble Deep Field image where we point at one narrow region of the sky for really long periods of time to get this ultra deep view as far as we can see. And another thing we can do is do something like the Hubble Frontier Fields, where we look at a much larger region of the sky and sort of stitch this mosaic together um, but less deeply, uh, so we can sort of get a larger area on the sky, but also go super, super deep. With James Webb, we're going to be able to see longer and longer wavelengths. So you mentioned the epic of reionization. So I think about, okay, uh, if we look back, back, back through the universe right now, it's all transparent to visible light because, almost all of the neutral atoms that formed a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, uh, by the time you form enough hot stars and galaxies and you have enough of these ultraviolet photons in the universe, they ionize these neutral atoms that exist in the intergalactic medium. And once those atoms get ionized, then the starlight, the optical light that travels through the universe is going to do so without getting absorbed. But, Before that, before uh, reionization completes about five or six hundred million years after the Big Bang, most of that visible light, most of that optical and ultraviolet light gets blocked by that dust. So if you want to see farther than that with Hubble, you have to get really lucky. And you have to be looking along a, I'll say, serendipitously uh greater-than-average line of sight where reionization happens earlier than average. But with James Webb, you don't. James Webb, because it's going to observe at such longer wavelengths, has the advantage that it can start observing the light that was emitted already in the infrared. And just like if you take a look at the Milky Way, in the night sky, and you see the dark bands in it, that's because the optical light is getting blocked by neutral atoms. But if you instead were able to look at the Milky Way with infrared eyes, if we had infrared eyes instead of optical eyes, you could see all the stars behind that dust. So the great hope is that with James Webb, you won't be limited by where there are no neutral atoms. Instead, you can just see through them as far back as there actually are stars and galaxies. So instead of having a thing like Hubble that shows you what the universe looks like today, you can go even farther back and see how the objects in the universe grew up. And to me, that's, that's just an epic part of the story. It's like if, if you condensed all of the universe into a human lifetime, Hubble can maybe take you as far back as like a three year old toddler. But James Webb is going to take you back to seeing an infant or even a newborn. And to me, that's, that's a key part to understanding how Even these massive objects like galaxies formed and grew up.
1: Yeah, I I I totally agree, and I think one thing you really hit the nail on the head for is the the kind of the difference between the sort of like intense, focused pencil beam like surveys, which is what Hubble was really really known for. Hubble said, okay, um, the director back in the eighties and nineties said, okay, like let's stare at this one part of the sky for very long time, and that was one of the first times that people really, really understood the vastness of the universe and the abundance of galaxies in the universe. What's really interesting about Webb is while the the field of view is is bigger than Hubble, it's still kind of, it's still small compared to, you know, the vastness of sky that the human eye can take in. Um, And what's really great about Cosmos Webb um, is that we decided instead to go for the sort of mosaic perspective because um, we really wanted to get deep observations across a large swath of the sky in order to capture this, like, variety in, in birth stories, if you will. Um, and just by pointing web at a small patch of the sky with the way that reionization works and the way that the cosmic web in general in the universe works, it, I think the visual that usually comes up is a sponge. Um, imagine the universe is a sponge. There are all these voids where there aren't as many galaxies, and then there's all these connected tissues, that kind of serve as filaments or funnels, uh, where you'll find thick columns of gas and then nodes or or little dots of galaxies. And so with Webb, instead of kind of pointing uh, in one particular part of the sky for a very long time, it's very easy to become biased. In fact, there's lots of uh, papers out there uh, using Hubble data for decades that would argue back and forth that the universe um, has this kind of density of, of galaxies and, or that kind, less or more. And a lot of times that's because the field of view of the observation is so small that it's a high likelihood that maybe you landed on a void or maybe you landed on a very crowded line of sight. Um, So with Cosmos Web, it's really great. Uh, People stitch together this beautiful mosaic pattern that's huge. It's about the size of three full moons on the sky. And by doing that, we are able to kind of overcome this bias and make sure that we're able to cover multiple... Of these bubbles, these reionization bubbles, which become later the filaments um, and or the voids.
0: You know, I want to just bring up what a technical, uh, what a Herculean technical challenge it is to do that. Because, uh, When you talk about three full moons on the sky, uh, if you've ever seen the full moon, a full moon is about half of a degree in diameter. And it it depends on, you know, how close the moon is to Earth at at the time. But basically, if you hold up your pinky at arm's length, and you take just the top half of your pinky nail, assuming you're an adult human, uh, you take the top half of your pinky nail, that's roughly the size of the full moon on the sky. So you're saying take three of those, and that's what the Cosmos Web field of view is going to be. Now, when you look at how big, how large an amount of the sky can the James Webb Space Telescope see, uh the answer is measured in square arc minutes. Like it's just a few square arcminutes. Um the full moon at half a degree is about thirty arcminutes by thirty arc minutes. So you're talking about between two and three thousand square arc minutes on the sky is what you're going to image. So you're talking about, wow, we're basically going to need hundreds of individual James Webb observations of regions of the sky that are all next to or all overlap with each other. And then we're going to stitch them together. And that's how we're going to make this mosaic. And uh, I am so thankful that this program is happening. Because I imagine that in order to make Cosmos Web happen, um, you had to sort of say, hey, this one ambitious research project is going to be more scientifically valuable than hundreds of other short-lived projects that would only need a fraction of the observing time.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the key with these sort of big surveys is do you really you really, if you're going to ask for a lot of time, I mean, at the end of the day, um, Web is, you know, supported by NASA, which is supported by our taxpayer dollars and 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 whatnot. So at the end of the day, when you ask for such a significant amount of time, um, you really do want to make your case to both the, the, you know, the Telescope Allocation Committee, the TAC is what we call them, that, hey, we're not asking for this time just for us, we're asking for it for a broad community. So, the collaboration that I worked in is roughly 50 scientists in general, um, and not including their their students. But really, at the end of the day, this this data is going to be public. It's going to be usable um, by uh, astrophysicists of all different flavors. I mean, I imagine that there will be some people in there invested in some of the stars that just happen to be in the way. Um, I already have talked to a few people who are just interested in more of the low-redshift science, um, the better resolution data, the more coverage in the infrared Um who are just interested in that and aren't really interested in the early galaxy stuff and that's totally fine and that's kind of the point is yeah you wanted we wanted to create something that a would give us a rich rich data set to really understand something that's been bugging people for decades but then also create kind of this legacy value
0: yeah i mean i think it's tremendous when you start talking about hey we're gonna we're gonna start imaging a relatively large area of the sky with this ultra sensitive instrument uh And you have to realize in the wavelengths, that James Webb is going to be sensitive to. We're talking factors between of tens or hundreds or even thousands of sensitivity and resolution improvements over the telescopes like Wise and Spitzer and Herschel that came before it. So we're going to see farther. We're going to see fainter. We're going to see better resolution. We're going to be able to do better spectroscopy, better spectral energy distribution, uh, anything you'd want to measure web can do it better than anything that came before it and with a large area on the sky you know you're not just going to get galaxies you're going to get stars and gas and dust and the interstellar medium and gas clouds and you might get uh, things like galaxy clusters. You might get signals of gravitational lensing. You might be able to probe a little bit of that sponge-like, Swiss cheese-like, large-scale structure of the universe. Um, so if you're interested in cosmology, if you're interested in stars, if you're interested in the evolution of the heavy elements in the universe, uh, this is going to be a gold mine. and that's not even mentioning what you study, which is the galaxies themselves. One of the things I really wanted to ask about that is back in 2011 um Scientists discovered the very first population of what they call pristine gas. They discovered just a few examples of gas that looks to be made exclusively out of hydrogen and helium with no heavier elements in them at all. No carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen, um nothing, nothing that could have formed in stars. Uh, and so We think that is pristine. We think that is elements and gas that is left over from the Big Bang that has yet to form stars. I think with Cosmos Web, um, unless we somehow get remarkably unlucky, we're not only going to be able to find populations of this pristine gas, but we might get lucky enough to catch some of that pristine gas in the process of forming stars for the very first time. And if we did, if we found this example of what is representative of the very first stars in the universe, of the, at this point, theoretical population three stars in the universe, I think that could uh, really be revolutionary for science from, from stellar scales all the way up to galactic scales.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that part, the population three stars part is going to be super exciting. I mean, like you said, they've just been theory for so long. I really think we're, we're on the precipice of detecting them and understanding them. And I understand some people think that they have found some candidates for follow-up, and I'm hoping that they got time or have time on web to confirm these population three stars in this sort of pristine gas situation. Um, and one of the things I love, love telling people um who maybe don't care about the galaxy evolution part as much but care a lot more about the more uh fine finer parts like you were saying with with stellar astrophysics etc is it 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 is really exciting not just to understand how galaxies form but also to really understand how all of our elements in the universe go were formed from this kind of pristi- from this pristine gas where how we went from hydrogen and helium all the way to having these more heavy complex elements like gold and iron um It'll be really exciting for that reason, and it'll also be really exciting because, while I don't think Webb will actually help with this directly for the first galaxies, um, it will be really interesting to understand chemical evolution and the context of forming planets, and maybe even some of the first life um, in the universe in these first galaxies from these population three stars made from this pristine gas. Um, So I love, love, love bringing it back down to what we experience here on Earth, um, because I think a lot of folks really focus on life and stellar evolution in our own galaxy. And this will be one of the first times that maybe we can expand beyond that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that is so important. So I'm gonna tell you a purely theoretical story. And this is sort of a, we don't know, maybe this happens story. Um, And after I tell you the story, I would love for you to tell me uh, sort of why maybe and maybe not um, so I'm going to imagine that I go all the way back to the gas left over from the Big Bang before any stars have formed. And I'm, I've got this picture in my head that, okay, uh, I've got all of this matter, dark matter, normal matter, and it's going to start to gravitationally collapse. And when I have an overdense region, a region just, that just happens to start off with more matter than the others around it, it's going to preferentially draw that matter into it. It's gonna preferentially gravitationally grow. And the more it grows, the better and better it's gonna be at drawing this matter in. Now, I imagine we're gonna have to have this gas, enough of it accumulate so that I can collapse to form stars. But I'm going to need much, much, much more of it than I need to form stars with the gas we have today, because whenever gas collapses, it has all of this gravitational potential energy that it has to sort of radiate away. It has to radiate this energy away if it wants to collapse, because if it doesn't radiate the energy away, then when it starts to collapse, it's going to speed up, and when it speeds up and collides, it's going to heat up, and then when it heats up, that's going to prevent it from collapsing to be dense enough to form stars and trigger those nuclear fusion reactions. So I imagine you have to have much more mass and much more gas together because of this cooling problem. And then I imagine, okay, well, if gas has problems cooling, then you're going to need much more of it, which means your stars are going to be much more massive than the stars you form today. So, okay, you form these early massive stars, but the most massive stars burn through their fuel the fastest, shine the brightest, and live the shortest. So all of a sudden I'm going to have this tremendous amount of fireworks that happen pretty much immediately after I form stars. Now I form my first stars, they've lived fast, they've died young, and they've enriched the elements around them, the universe around them with these heavy elements. And now they can form lower mass stars. These heavy elements are good at radiating the heat away. Um, If that's my story, what parts of the story um, will Webb be able to teach us? And if that's not the story, will Webb be able to say, aha, that's not the story after all?
1: Hmm. So, yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, so in, in, in general, that story is what we think happens for the most part. Um, yes, galaxy formation or star formation, especially in the beginning, is highly believed to be highly inefficient. Um, in theory, in the best of cases, I believe only like 20 to 30 percent of cold gas is converted into stars. And so for the majority of galaxy evolution, the thought is that there's this thing called the bathtub model, where exactly what you described happens. So gas coalesces, s- stars form, especially in the beginning, it's the young, hot, powerful stars. Um, as they pop off um, in supernova, they spew um, they spew all that those elements back into the ISM, the interstellar media, but also part of that process um, blows gas out of the main disk of the galaxy out into its, its dark matter halo. And you can imagine this kind of fountain motion where really as stars are dying, Um, and exploding, and even some stars, maybe small, lower-mass stars will turn into um, what are called AGB stars, which actually have winds that also theoretically blow really powerful winds across the galaxy, so we have this fountain effect of gas being heated and blown out of the galaxy, but then the gravity pulling it back on to the galaxy in this sort of like rain fashion, and so the idea is that really it just cycles like that the majority of the galaxy's lifetime until essentially it's no longer getting gas. So the real question is, is okay, why does it stop getting gas? What stops the galaxy from getting gas in the first place in general? And here's where web can definitely um, help as long as it's paired with another telescope such as the ALMA Observatory, which is what I'll be using. Um, Essentially, ALMA helps us uh, study cold gas. It's a radio interferometer or some millimeter millimeter interferometer, and it helps us study the colder part of the universe, um, namely gas and dust. And so we can use ALMA to study the gas in galaxies and pair that with um, Webb observations of the stellar component. The other thing Webb will help with, um, at least out to intermediate redshifts, not with the first galaxies, but with the more teenagers, if you will, um, what it'll help us do is help us understand the galaxy-halo formation connection um, out to these intermediate times. And it'll do that by using a process called weak lensing or galaxy-galaxy lensing. It's essentially when one galaxy, uh, really massive galaxy is in the foreground, it's in front of us, and then there's a galaxy behind it, um, and the galaxy's light that's behind, as it's coming towards us, it gets bent by the halo of the foreground galaxy because the gravitational attraction or gravitational pull strong enough that it can actually bend the light so we get these galaxy lenses and we can really that's one of the only ways we can really understand the halo mass or the size or the strength of a dark matter halo of other galaxies because all the other ways we do it are incredibly incredibly observationally um expensive and sometimes impossible um so this is kind of a a cheaper way of understanding um the mass of dark matter halos and how they've evolved through time by literally trying to find these lenses um, and getting the redshifts or the distances or the ages of all the galaxies involved in the galaxy-galaxy lensing, so both the foreground and the background. And by having this information, we can kind of posit or piece together a picture of, like, okay, bigger, uh, more massive galaxies that are more red and dead, so not forming stars, are more likely to be in massive halos, whereas uh, star-forming galaxies that are of similar mass have smaller halos. So maybe we put together that dark matter halos and galaxies kind of grow together. Um, And all of this is wrapping up to the idea that in both in theory and in simulations and in observations, um, we're starting to really think that cold gas accretion or cold gas, uh, basically all the processes that put cold gas into a galaxy and maybe even prevent cold gas from entering a galaxy later might have to do with its dark matter halo. Um, And so later in time, it's potentially possible that the dark matter halo gets so massive that it does this wacky thing called shock heating, where essentially it gets so hot that cold gas in the universe on those filaments I was explaining earlier from the sponge metaphor, those filaments that kind of funnel cold gas um, from space into a galaxy halo to eat, um, eventually perhaps that dark matter halo is so hot that it actually prevents any cold gas from entering um, the the galaxy itself and therefore it stops that that formation so in the earlier universe um, in the very very beginning as far as we understand it's mostly a gravitational interaction between gas and dark matter and so they're forming that halo together this, this sphere um, in the universe together and they're condensing together and that's when the stars pop off and that's when the question of okay how does that bathtub model come into play when does when do the stars start to blow out the cold gas or heat up to the point where the only way it doesn't escape the dark matter halo is if the dark matter halo is big enough. Um, There's just all these different, different pieces and I haven't even talked about black holes yet. (laughs) Um, So uh, essentially what I'm getting at is I think, I think Webb will be very, very helpful in understanding the dark matter galaxy halo formation connection at later times. And perhaps even at earlier times, if we're, Successful in pairing that data that information with data um, on the other side of the electromagnetic spectrum Where we can study the gas properties of these same first galaxies
0: You know, I I love this idea because uh, one of the things that longtime listeners of this podcast will appreciate is this idea of multi-wavelength observations because when you look at in different wavelengths of light, you're seeing different signatures. So, for example, if you look in, you know, the wavelengths of light that the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to see, you'll be able to see starlight and of, of all different varieties. Um, and so when you have uh, you know, these massive clumps in the universe, whether they're made out of gas, whether they're made out of dust, or stars, or dark matter, mass is mass, and mass bends space-time wherever it clumps together. So you're going to get a gravitational lens, and it's going to have a shape, have a density profile, have an extent on the sky, and you're going to be able to map out where that mass is solely by looking at how the light from the background galaxies and background points of light is distorted. But then... You're going to want to ask questions like, okay, even if I can map out where the mass is and I can map out how dense the mass is in various places from the gravity, the gravitational effects of it alone, then I'm going to ask, well – where is the gas and how much gas is there? And that's where I think those extra-long wavelength observations, the kind that the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array ALMA is going to be able to reveal comes in because you have these molecules and these ions and these atoms um, that only emit light at very, very specific wavelengths, right? You have these... uh, basically electron transitions that happen uh, at very long wavelengths. And so when you see these transitions occur, and you measure them in ALMA's wavelengths of light, sensitive to ALMA's eyes, then all of a sudden you have this gravitational lensing map of where the mass is. And then you have a map of where the gas is, of where the normal matter is on top of it. And so you can sort of see okay, now based on this, uh where's the rest of the normal matter and how much matter that isn't normal matter is there? And I imagine almost immediately you'll be able to learn how do Dark matter and gas evolve over time. How does the shape of the dark matter halo change with cumulative star formation? Is there dynamical heating of the dark matter that happens, and how much? Is it consistent with dark matter truly being cold and collisionless, or does it indicate some sort of interaction between dark matter and normal matter, or dark matter and radiation, or dark matter and itself and other dark matter particles. So it's kind of weird that looking at the universe on the largest scales throughout cosmic time, even just in light, even in electromagnetic light, by looking at it in different wavelengths of light, we can actually start to constrain and better figure out what the nature of dark matter is. And that that is an amazing possibility to me that we're actually going to be able to get clues and hints as to what dark matter is from using telescopes, not from using laboratory experiments here on Earth, but through the use of observing the universe.
1: Yeah, right. You have to really give it up to to some of these these scientists before me. You know, I stand on the shoulders of giants because some of these techniques are just so clever. Um, given the instruments that they had then, given the instruments that we have now, that it's just amazing that we are able to do this um, and to measure something that, in theory, is is unmeasurable, right? Um, And and one other way you can do that is through, like, rotation curves. And what's really interesting is people are looking at rotation curves, oftentimes of stars, but even now you can do that with gas because of ALMA. Um, I know this is supposed to be a podcast talking about Uh, Web, and Web is amazing, but I think Web and most telescopes are really so amazing because of the data points that they can really analyze and and, and understand together because of the way that they can work together and what we can understand um, by using all these data points. I can't tell you how many times um, in my research and in many other people's research where maybe we'll get a dark matter halo mass about these galaxies using uh, optical data from Hubble, um, and that dark matter halo prediction, mass, etc., is totally different when you use a different indicator. And so these are just other little things that are showing us that, okay, we really still don't understand the galaxy halo connection. And we really, really need statistical samples, so really, really big data sets and examples um, of galaxies and their halo masses in order to really kind of firmly state, okay, this is how... They evolve together, even if it's a gentle statement of them growing um, in lockstep or them growing continuously. Something that seems so easy and simple is really, really requires a lot of data and a lot of data points um, across the spectrum. And I think that's just so beautiful um, about this field in general and about all the, the next generation telescopes where we're going with them
0: and And I think one of the things to go back to something you brought up earlier uh, that we have to keep in mind when we do this is you're going to be taking and and others obviously, uh, but scientists are going to be taking all of these observations and learning as much as we can about the things we can't observe directly. And so we're going to be making inferences and we're going to be pooling all of this data together into some aggregate form to pull out a general picture of how do things happen on average. Do you ever worry, though, when you do that, that... By averaging over what you already know is this diverse and varied population of things that you are only pulling out the average behavior, and that if you were to look in detail, if you were able to look in detail at any of these individual systems, you might discover that there's actually a tremendous variety out there, that maybe the dark matter gas connection works differently in different environments or at different different times or with different densities than it does in others do you worry that the different types or sizes or evolutionary stages of galaxies actually do play a role and correlate with how dark matter and gas and normal matter evolve together i mean i i imagine you say like yeah of course this is this is a problem but also you know you you have to you have to crawl before you walk before you run and you know we're we're going to do the first step first, and then we're going to try and get a little more granular after that.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, to answer your question, yes. Yes to all the things. Um, I am forever irked by this. I think a lot of people are. Um, it, and it's very evident sometimes when you're reading the titles of the papers and how people are uh, in, very intentional in carving out their very specific subset of a very peculiar kind, peculiar kind of galaxy. Um, so, for example lately there's been a lot of talk about the ultra diffuse uh, dwarf galaxies i have some friends who work in that area and in that area um there is now a you know subset of galaxies um within the ultra diffuse dwarf galaxies that are potentially dark matter poor um and so people are understand like seeking to understand how it is that these small galaxies lose their dark matter or maybe never really get gained it in the first place um me personally, yes, I am bothered by it all of the time. Um, I think I think it is a balance between what you're saying. I, I think it's really important to do some of the averaging to kind of have that more cosmological perspective, and then to go in and say, okay, here's the average trend, but look at this little weird cluster offset over here. Let's go figure out what's going out over going on over there. And I think that's where some of the best science happens. Um, in my my experience with peers and colleagues, um, some of the best science, I think, really comes out of, okay, we did the average, but look at this weird thing over here. And more often than not, it's not just one galaxy, it's usually a, a subset, and there's something going on to to discover. Um, and so if, when it comes down to the actual dark matter halo part, yes, in, in particular, I am personally interested in understanding the most massive galaxies in the early universe. So the most massive galaxies in the first roughly 2 billion years of the universe, because there is something weird going on. Um, With some of the uh, simulations and theory um, out there, there are really little to no predictions of massive galaxies during this epoch, um, so beyond Redshift 3, uh, that should be quenched as in no longer forming stars. And yet, through different data sets done by different teams with different uh, methods and different telescopes, there's continually, they are continually discovering new populations of quiescent galaxies beyond redshift three in this this early cosmos, and we don't really understand why or how that they get there. Again, again, mostly because we can't even model them in the first place, um, and so really we just have general theories. Okay, well they must have had a starburst scenario where they just formed all their stars at once and then became quiescent and just like live the rest of their lives as dead okay, but what does that mean? And, and when is that starburst? And how did that interplay with their halo and gas formation? Is it, did it pop off because the halo and the gas was already super massive um, and it just ready, ready and all the stars are roughly the same age and they all formed at the same time? Or was it two gas-rich galaxies that were already kind of average in size and normal, but then they merged together to create the super galaxy and consumed all of their gas in a really short period of time? And again, what role does the dark matter halo play in preventing additional star formation? Because as far as we're concerned, the majority of galaxies in this epoch, in those, those first two billion years, are gas rich. And there's an abundance of gas in the universe. So why is it that we have these dead galaxies over here um, that seem to have no gas? Um, so this is, this is the area that I focus on and that maybe you can tell by the passion of my voice. It keeps me up at night. It does bother me. <laughs>
0: Well, that's great. I mean, let's, let's dive into a bunch of these things. So one of the things you were talking about is, you know, yes, it bothers me. It bothers you that you have, okay, uh, this is what's happening on average, but there is this subset of populations that are likely to stand out where you'll look at them and it won't, uh, obey the same average rules that the average things do obey. And that makes me think, you know, when you hear hoofbeats. uh, think horses, not zebras. But depending on where you are and where you're looking, sometimes it will be zebras, and sometimes it won't be horses. And so it's worth keeping in mind that hooves don't always mean horses, and whatever galaxies you're looking at don't necessarily imply that you're looking at an average galaxy when you pick out a specific galaxy um, but then you started getting into the discussion of star formation and quenching of star formation and this is one of those areas where you know Okay, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but back when I started graduate school 21 years ago, uh, the star formation history of the universe was not very well known. We still did not know uh, what the typical distribution of stars in the universe were, particularly at the low mass end. We didn't know how the populations of stars changed over cosmic time, and we didn't know... um, what we know today, which is that star formation started out at a very low rate in the universe. And for the first... Few hundred million years, and honestly, the first few billion years, the rate of star formation increased rapidly. Uh, so, you know, by the time you get to about 550 million years after the Big Bang, uh, you finally have formed enough stars that all of those intergalactic neutral atoms uh, become ionized. And so that light, the optical light, can travel through the universe. And that creates what we call the WIM or the warm hot intergalactic medium. And for another billion or two years, star formation just continues to increase and increase and increase. Uh, But then over the next billion or two years after that, Uh, the increase in star formation slows down, and it reaches a peak. And about 3 billion years after the Big Bang, uh, that's where you form the most number of stars. That's the greatest star formation rate in our cosmic history. It peaks about 10 or 11 billion years ago. And ever since then, it's been falling, which means that galaxies that used to form stars are no longer forming stars, and they become red and dead the reason they become dead is because they don't form new stars because they don't have any more gas, because it's all been expelled, or because it has been pushed too far out that it won't fall back and form new stars. And they're called red, because when you form stars, you form them of all different colors. But it's the bluest, hottest stars that are the shortest lived. And so as time passes, the blue ones die, and then the white ones die, and then the yellow ones die, and you're only left with the red ones. So why do they die? how do they die? Is it because there's some feedback of dark matter? Is it because you've just used up the gas and expelled it? Is it because of winds? Is it because of feedback from the supermassive black hole at the center? And speaking of that, how did that supermassive black hole get so supermassive? Did it start from a seed that formed from the first stars and grow into the behemoths we have today? Did it form via direct collapse? Was the universe born with a population of black holes and did they grow and did galaxies form around them? I I have hunches about these, but what I really want is data about these. Uh Will James Webb give us that data to be able to answer questions like these? And are these also the types of questions that keep you up at night? I I realize I'm just like going through your reasons for insomnia here.
1: Um. (laughs) No, I I definitely laughed a few times while you were going through those questions. I was like, wow, I feel like I'm having a conversation uh, with myself right now (laughs) and some of my closest uh, colleagues and collaborators, because these are the things that, that bug us for sure. Um, I will say that I think I think the community, as far as the decline in, in cosmic star formation, I think that it's becoming a little bit clearer in the, really only in the last five years that um, there probably is gas in these red and dead galaxies. It's just really hot. Um, in fact, I do know of a couple of researchers at the University of Chicago who, um, in fact, used ALMA to detect, um, ALMA and I believe Keck maybe, the Keck telescopes, Um uh, to detect uh, gas in hot elliptical galaxies that were no longer forming stars it the gas was just very hot um and unable to cool uh, in a, in such a fashion to to form stars and so then the the question is okay is what what makes the gas hot is it just feedback from the stars themselves that kind of ambient radiation um, is it the active black hole the AGM the active galactic nuclei um, I love that question especially uh, in, in the dawn of, of Webb because um, the AGN community is just is, is so split. I've dabbled a little bit in that, and some of my closest peers are in that community. And and really, some people firmly believe that AGN black hole feedback can either consume, blow out, or heat up um, all the gas in a galaxy and shut down star formation. And that really was the dominant theory for a really long time. Um, but more research is starting to show with with slightly better telescopes and and slightly more sophisticated statistical methods et etc cetera, etc cetera, it's starting to show that hey that's not true in all cases and or at least not in most or maybe even the average so maybe there's something else going on here maybe there's something else that prevents the gas maybe the active galactic nuclei the AGN has a, a part to play but maybe the part that it plays isn't as big as you think it is um, and so Webb will definitely help with that um, partially just with having a better spatial resolution, but also this mid-infrared part of of the spectral energy distribution is really, really critical. So in the mid-infrared, you get warm and hot dust. In the far infrared and beyond, you're getting the cold things, the cold dust, the cold gas, but in the mid-infrared, you're getting warm and hot dust. And the only things that really heat up dust is star formation, so young hot stars that are forming, Um, And they're, you know, enshrouded in their their nebulae, and they're all dusty and gassy, so they're heating that gas and dust, and it re-emits poorly in the infrared. And the other thing that can create this hot, warm dust component is the AGN sort of toroidal structure. So it's essentially um, a clumpy sort of donut around the black hole at the center of the galaxy. Um, And as the black hole is accreting matter, um, from its accretion disk, it also emits really high-energy X-ray ultraviolet photons that heat that dust, um, which again re-emits in the mid-infrared. And this is where James Webb will just be so critical, because the only thing we really had in that range for so long was Spitzer. And Spitzer really did help us pioneer a lot of these areas, but the resolutions were just atrocious compared to what we're about to see. Um, I'm talking like I had uh, uh, I had about 10 or 11 galaxies that were blended together into two blobs on Spitzer. Um, and so it's just impossible to tell where that mid-infrared radiation is coming from. And so not only will we be able to uh, assign that radiation to specific galaxies, but we may actually be able to resolve it on a galaxy-level scale, on that, that kiloparsec scale. So, okay, is most of that hot dust, that warm dust area coming from the central engine the nuclei right where the black hole is or is it kind of more widespread along the arms in these little clumps where the stars are forming and that'll really just help us understand okay how powerful are these agn how powerful is their radiation um and and are they really as common as we think they are and are they powerful enough um as they might be um so james webb will will definitely help with that and i'm sure i'm not even I'm on the tip of the iceberg for AGN science, um, as far as I understand. Um, and then as far as black holes forming in the early universe, I don't know much about that, to be honest, um, in terms of using web. Um, I believe the theories are still exactly what you said. Is it direct collapse um, into black hole? Or is it you know massive stars who explode, um, turn into black holes, and then they kind of coalesce to form a larger one over time? How quick is that coalescence? those are all still um, outstanding questions. And uh, to be frank, yeah, I don't I don't know much about how web can help with that.
0: Well, there's no worries, because there are all sorts of questions that that I have to answer that I have to ask that I hope you can answer. uh, Because some of what you said is just, it's it's obvious when you think about it, but it's not obvious uh, just at a cursory glance. Like, you know, oh, why is Spitzer's resolution so poor, for example? Like, isn't it amazing that we had Spitzer at all? Well, well, yes, it is. And in many ways, even though James Webb has been touted as the successor to Hubble, it's really more like the successor to Spitzer, uh, because Spitzer observed in those near and mid-infrared wavelengths. Now, You have to realize that even though Spitzer lived for a long time, it it operated in space for almost 20 years, Uh, for more than half of that time, it was operating under what we called a warm mission because Spitzer only had a finite amount of coolant on board. And if you want to observe in the near-infrared, that's fine. You don't need the coolant because the things you observe in the near-infrared are radiating at 100 Kelvin, 200 Kelvin uh you can see them just by shading and shielding your telescope appropriately. But if you want to observe in the mid-infrared, you have to cool your instrument, your components down to, you know, 10 Kelvin or less, just a few degrees above absolute zero. And when Spitzer ran out of coolant, basically its mid-infrared eyes got swamped by noise. So it only really had those early observations in the mid-infrared to work with. But then there's this other factor that how good of you know, an eye did Spitzer have? Well, the answer is it was worse in the mid-infrared than it was in the near-infrared. And the reason for that is the same reason James Webb will have worse resolution in the mid-infrared than the near-infrared, which is that a telescope's resolving power, the, the goodness of how small it can resolve structures and how well it can see in terms of angular size is determined by the number of wavelengths of whatever light you're looking in that fit across the diameter of your primary mirror. So for Spitzer, if Spitzer is looking in the mid-infrared, you take whatever mid-infrared wavelength you want to look at, like say 24 microns, and you say, okay, how many micron how many times can 24 microns of a wavelength fit across Spitzer's primary mirror? Well, Spitzer's primary mirror is a little less than three feet in diameter, about 0.8 meters. Uh, James Webb Space Telescope is about eight times the diameter of Spitzer. So even at the same wavelength range, it can resolve things eight times as as narrowly. And because the collecting area of your telescope scales as its diameter squared, that means that James Webb is going to have more than 50 times the light-gathering power of Spitzer. So it's not only going to get much better resolution, but it's going to be able to see fainter features and fainter objects, and it's going to be able to see brighter objects in detail more quickly than Spitzer ever could. So on the one hand... We're going to get, if you look at Spitzer data and you're like, oh, that's interesting, like whatever Spitzer saw, James Webb is going to be able to see so much better in all wavelengths of light. But then there's this other part to it, too, where you sort of say, oh, wow, like, but James Webb is also going to have... capabilities that spitzer never had james webb has so many more wavelength bands to observe in james webb has such greater spectral energy and uh resolution than spitzer ever had james webb has the ability to point and resolve things and expose objects that spitzer never could and i'm sure that i'm not even making a comprehensive list of all the things James Webb could do that Spitzer couldn't. But one of the things you said that puzzled me that I want to go back to a little bit is um, you talked about the things that heat gas up, the things that make gas radiate in the infrared. Uh, And you talked about star formation, that the radiation from stars can heat gas up. Uh, And you talked about sort of uh, the feedback from these central black holes from the AGN, that they have these toroidal structures around them, uh, and those can heat the gas up. My question is, why can't Infalling gas, merging gas, uh, collisions from moving structures uh, like galaxies that collide, or galaxy groups or clusters that collide, or gas that infalls from the interstellar medium and collides with the gas already in your galaxies. Why won't that heat the gas up so that the gas becomes observable? Why wouldn't this, you know, sort of kinetic friction or kinetic heating? Why wouldn't that efficiently convert the energy of the moving gas into thermal energy to heat that gas up?
1: Well, let me first, I'm going to go, I'm going to take a step back really quickly and, and just make sure that I've been clear on something. So just to be clear, in the mid infrared, what we're really picking up is, is the warmed dust. And, and the reason that we use gas and dust interchangeably, or at least the reason I do, is because one of the re- one of the easiest ways to understand or measure gas um, abundance or, or the amount of gas in a galaxy is often to use um, the dust as a tracer because we believe through some laboratory experiments and nearby galaxy studies and, and studies in our own galaxy that in general gas tends to kind of coexist with dust because it cools onto um, the dust, the kind of the complex carbon uh, molecules that 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 dust is made up of, and so oftentimes it's a lot cheaper and easier. To talk about dust in in, in observations um, as a tracer of gas. If you want to actually measure gas, it always it almost always ends up being spectros- it's always spectroscopy, um, and you can use definitely James Webb to do parts of that for the high redshift universe. Um, Alma has been pretty critical in doing that too, um, but essentially I just want to be clear that sometimes we'll say dust or gas or dust and gas, um, but really when we're talking about mid-infrared heat signatures, we're talking about dust. Um, as far as the, the collisions of gas goes, um, the physics of it, I, I, I remember doing a back of the envelope uh, order of magnitude mass thing in one of my classes once, and I remember learning that if there was any kind of thermal energy, you'd have to be pretty incredible, the collision, for it to show up. And it does show up sometimes. Um, the most famous cases are called jellyfish galaxies, which is really fun. Um, and they are typically galaxies that are slamming into the massive dark matter halos of already formed galaxy clusters. And so galaxy clusters are pretty famous for these what are called x-ray bright halos, which essentially means that their dark matter halo this tiny condensed space that all these galaxies are shoved into um, is super hot, um, heated by both the galaxies within, potentially this kind of mass-related shock heating thing that I was talking about earlier with halos. And so they have ga- these clusters have these really, really hot dark matter halos that are easily detected in x-rays. Um, and oftentimes, if you find a galaxy, a star-forming or a gas-rich galaxy, that is merging onto this dark matter halo. It's, it's coming to join its, its its dead friends in the graveyard. It's, it's coming to die. Um, you can actually see a trail of gas behind it um, that has been lit up from the collision process. Um, and it's detectable, it's visible, it's quite beautiful looking, it does look like a jellyfish. And as far as I understand that that process is powerful enough. Um, I do... Um, I don't know much about galactic studies. I wonder how often um, they pick up in our own galaxy detections of gas collisions. But I, as far as I remember from, from classes and from peeking around in some of those papers, it, they have to be pretty spectacular um, for our current, uh, our current telescopes to pick them up.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's all about the magnitude of the signal, right? So if you have uh, a thousand galaxies worth of gas together... Uh, merging with another thousand galaxies worth of gas together, it's going to produce a much greater magnitude signal than if you only have a single galaxy or a pair of galaxies or even a small group of galaxies merging together. Like when we see these merging galaxy clusters, I think the smallest one I know of that has X-ray emissions is known as the bullet group, uh, which is named obviously uh, after the famous bullet cluster, Uh, but it's a much smaller group. Group And obviously the x-ray emission signals are much smaller, uh, because it just has less mass there. Just to be clear, though, I want to emphasize that when you say, uh, the dark matter halo is hot, uh, you're not talking about the actual heat, uh, of the dark matter itself, you're talking about the normal matter, the gas that lives in the galactic halo, which is dominated by dark matter. And so it's the, the gas in the halo that's heating up, not the dark matter in the halo that's hot and emitting radiation.
1: Correct. Yes. That is a jargon that could definitely be easily misconstrued. But yes, it is the, the regular matter, the normal matter that is quite hot. There's plenty of hot, hot gas in the Dark Matter Halo, and that's what I'm referring to.
0: Yeah, and this is actually fascinating to me because for a long time, as far as I know, going back to the 1980s, and I, I'm most familiar with the work of Megan Donahue and then later Monique Arnaud, although I'm sure there were many others who played a role in this, um, it's uh, One of the strongest pieces of evidence are these hot clusters uh, that that show us that there has to be more matter than normal matter can account for on large scales, because we can look at these clusters and we can say, okay, I can see how much matter is there in the form of stars, and I can measure uh, the gas and dust, and I can measure how much mass is there Uh, from the x-rays that I see because the gas heats up and it collides. And we're not talking it heats up and emits in the mid-infrared, although it does that, but we're talking it emits, it heats up Mm -hmm. and emits in the x-ray. So we're not just getting up to like, you know, a few tens of Kelvin. We're getting up to like tens of thousands of Kelvin or even hotter. Um, And so you see all of this radiation that gets emitted. And then you can ask, what fraction of the total amount of mass that you know has to be there from say gravitational lensing or from say the speeds at which the individual galaxies in the cluster are zipping around um what fraction of this combined from all the sources can be in the form of normal matter. And the answer always came out to the same rough number around 15%. Some are 17%, some are 13%, some are 11%. uh, But they're all between 10 and 20%, which tells us that more than 80% of the overall mass that's in these galaxy clusters can't be normal matter. And that's true in every... X-ray-emitting galaxy cluster that I think I know of.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, galaxy clusters, I've also done a little bit of work there. And and I think it, what we're talking about right now is these fully formed clusters. But there's still a lot of questions about the signals, the formation process, the halo, the gas, the stellar component of, of cluster progenitors in um, understanding how that mass changes and it, and it kind of goes back to some of the same questions I was asking earlier about individual galaxies can be applied to these clusters we see here in our local universe that we have these fully formed clusters with x-ray bright halos and we can deduce from this work that you know less than 20% roughly of, of the matter is, is normal matter and the rest must be dark but then you have the question of okay well how did this cluster form in the first place and did all the dark matter was it all there first as like its own like kind of isolated uber massive halo with maybe one galaxy and then a bunch of galaxies joined later, um, bringing their own little you know luggage of of dark matter or was it just kind of consistently grown over time? There's lots of different questions about this and this is something that'll be really interesting too even with Webb and with hopefully one of the next generation um, uh, NASA telescopes to come out in the next couple of decades is you know, when, when can we start to see these X-ray signals of these clusters? Um, some people have claimed to actually detected them as far out uh, to cosmic noon, um, that kind of 10 billion years ago time when most stars were being formed. Um, some people have found galaxy clusters that far back and detected X-ray signals and assumed that they were the halos, but then there's the question of, okay, but it could also maybe be really powerful black holes or AGN. Um and so understanding, you know, how dark matter grows both in kind of more menial day-to-day, if you will, circumstances with just like an isolated galaxy all the way up to the most massive structures we know, galaxy clusters, um, is is really gonna be a, a really interesting area of research over the next couple of decades. Um, I'm really excited for it and it'll be really interesting to see what happens.
0: No, and this brings us full circle back to Uh, the project you were talking about, Cosmos Web, that will be, uh, you know, beginning this year, like this will be data that's taken over, you know, starting uh, this summer over the next 12 months or so after that, that's going to observe, you know, a significant fraction of a degree, like you said, three full moons worth on the sky of, you know, the universe at James Webb Space Telescope capabilities and resolution, because what this is going to reveal is everything. It's sort of like Uh, taking a little slice, like we call it a pencil beam, but it spreads out over time. So it spreads out the farther away you go. And it's basically just taking like a little um, conical slice, a little cone-like slice of the universe as far out as everything goes. So you're going to get some things from the nearby universe and some things from the intermediate universe and some things from the distant universe and some things from the ultra distant universe and then even some things from the pre-reionization universe. You're not going to get the same object at different distances, but you're going to get a sample and a population of objects. And that's going to allow you to say, hey, uh, We think this object that we see at intermediate redshifts is the late-time analog of this type of object that we see at greater redshifts or farther look-back times or from an earlier period in the universe. And this is, I think, where it comes full circle back to your research on understanding the most massive galaxies, how they grow up, how they form, how they evolve— What happens to the stars and the gas inside of them? How do their black holes evolve? What happens as far as quenching and star formation and the end of star formation? Where is the gas? Where does it go? Does it persist? Um, All of these questions are questions that observations like Cosmos Web will be able to shed light on. And I think for me, like that's, that's one of the most exciting things, not only about modern science, but about getting to have uh, someone like you on this podcast, because this is the cutting edge. This is the frontier of what we know, and how we're going to push it back further. Um, And you're one of the people on the front lines, taking the data, analyzing it, and interpreting what it means for us. Um, And I just think that we are so lucky uh, to be able to have this conversation with you.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, yeah it's it's really it's really exciting, and I feel so fortunate to be in the field at this time. It's a really exciting time, um, and it's just we're on the precipice of understanding things that we just never understood before. We'll we'll have a more deep understanding of the universe than we've ever had. And I think one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I love so much about um, this research is that yes, it is the cutting edge, and yes, it's so exci- it's so exciting, and yes, we work together and we build off of each other. But at the end of the day, it is just so interesting to me that sometimes our best solution to discovering something or understanding something is to just kind of trial and error rule out um, other things. <laughs> so um, you mentioned uh, what did you mention? Well, I, my my go-to example is like the epoch of reionization where in general, like one of the easiest ways to understand which galaxies were responsible for ionizing the universe into the state that we know today is to just literally take some pictures and um, overlay them on the sky and try to literally rule out, okay, this galaxy is at this uh, distance this time and is this strong, so it creates this many photons and therefore can be responsible for this much of a fraction. And you just kind of keep doing that until suddenly you're left with, okay, well, there's you know, maybe there's 33% of the universe left to be ionized and we don't know what it is. Okay, so maybe that's the really, really small galaxies that we can't see. And then you gave the example of the galaxy cluster where, you know, they sat down and they pulled out each galaxy and said, okay, you're responsible for this much. And you're responsible for this much. Okay, what's left over? Oh, what's left over is, is a significant amount. Um, so it must be the dark matter. And I just love, I love that in, in the end of the, at the end of the day that yes, um, this is cutting edge science and and our tools for understanding our science are, of course, always evolving. I mean, with data science and and machine learning, we're all learning new tools. But at the end of the day, a lot of our tools are still the same, just with better equipment um, and, and maybe some fresher ideas here and there. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful to be here in this time. I'm also really excited uh, to collaborate with so many people who have a lot of these cutting edge ideas, um, both within the Cosmos collaboration, but even beyond that um people really have some far out ideas and sometimes those aren't even the most wild ones just like you said horses versus zebras sometimes it really is zebras
0: yeah, and, and sometimes it might be something that you didn't even imagine could be out there. Like maybe, maybe it's a hippogriff, uh, which we don't think <laughs> exists, but if we look out into the distant universe and we find some sort of object that we didn't think was going to be there, but there it is. I mean, that's part of why you right. look is because you, you don't know the unknown unknowns that are out there. You don't know what it is that you don't know. I love the fact that you brought up um, that sometimes we discover what's out there in the universe by observing it, and it's a direct observation, and that tells us what's there, like what you see is what you get. But sometimes Mm -hmm. you learn what's happening in the universe because you make observations in different ways, and you get things that don't line up, that don't match up. And so you say, okay, if I'm seeing this in the x-ray and that in the radio and this in the infrared then when i combine that you know i can quantify this effect and i can quantify this Mm -hmm. component of matter and i can quantify you know everything you can quantify and then you have things that mismatch and those mismatches are often where the most interesting components are. That's where the most interesting lessons are. And that's where the most interesting clues towards peeling back our veil of ignorance about what else is out there in the universe can lie. So we could maybe find things that we don't even know we should be trying to find. Like, are there variations in fundamental constants over cosmic time do the rules of quantum mechanics change uh in these dense environments of uh galaxies or galaxy clusters in the early Mm -hmm. universe do uh these supermassive black holes have some sort of extra effect once they cross a specific mass threshold or once a certain number of stars have formed over a certain amount of time um you know these aren't things that i think are part of the mainstream thought but they're all things that if they happen uh our new upcoming observations will reveal that. And, you know, I think one of the uh, famous Asimov lines is scientific discovery isn't often accompanied by Eureka, but rather, that's funny. And <laughs> yes. I, think, I think the last few decades um, have shown us that that's true, that, you know, geez, like, We didn't expect in the late 90s that we were going to find the universe is accelerating and is in fact dominated by dark energy, which we didn't even really think existed until uh, supernova observations revealed them in the 1990s. Uh, We did not know that. LIGO was going to find the population of black holes that it found we didn't Mm -hmm. know recently that we were going to find such big massive supermassive black holes so early on in the universe and that's one of the big puzzles that people who study supermassive black holes are worried about and 10 even even 10 or 15 years ago Uh, it was almost unfathomable that we'd be able to directly image the event horizon of a black hole. Mm -hmm. But thanks to the astounding capabilities of networks of radio telescopes worldwide, and largely in part to the advent of ALMA, uh, not only were Mm -hmm. we able to do it, but we've even been able to measure the polarization of the light from the black hole too um and i am just blown away by what we've been able to learn and discover in image over the past few decades uh, the universe has not shown itself to be the way we would have expected it to be in every single way and i have a funny feeling that james webb is going to have more than a few surprises in store for us as mm-hmm. well
1: Yes, me too. Me too. I, I, you know, like you said, though, I welcome the surprises. I think that's the best. I, I love that quote, um, the Asimov quote. It's one of my favorites. Just, I think especially coming as a first-gen um, student, I don't really have any scientists in my family or anything like that. And so explaining to them what I do on a day-to-day basis can be difficult. But one of the, like, the, the most well-understood uh, things I've ever said to them was that Asimov quote where it's like most of the time, yeah, I have a hunch about something. I'm, I'm seeking it out. I'm trying to understand these galaxies and how they grow and form and die. But at the end of the day, the best part is when I get the, that's, that's weird. Um, and I fully anticipate that that's weird with James Webb. But I think the other challenge that will be really interesting, I've never been around for the complete, you know, introduction of a new telescope to the field. And I know that there'll be a, at least a, 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 a year, if not more, of uh, the community at large trial and erroring um, and understanding that, did we take our measurements right? Is everything calibrated calibrated properly? Is this really weird looking or did we just do something wrong? And and there's really no set uh, prescription yet for how to uh, analyze and reduce James Webb data. People are working on it. People are building pipelines and things like that. But at the end of the day, we'll never actually know. We can't prepare for something entirely that we don't, no, um and so it'll be really really interesting in the first few years um i know some folks maybe are familiar with the water on venus example where sometimes there may be a discovery that after some thorough follow-up may not be as exciting uh but then there might be the vice versa experience and, and those are those are the really fun ones that i'm looking forward to
0: yeah the uh the phosphine on venus thing was a uh questionable uh result for sure uh but it's also a good lesson that look you know we we have no right to expect that when we do things for the first time we're going to get everything right the first time but we also have to remember that you know just because someone cries wolf and it turns out there's not a wolf there this time doesn't mean there are no wolves out there keep looking. We have no right to expect that the wolf we're looking for is going to be easy to find. So keep looking because, um, you know, with better technology and better techniques and better tools, uh, your discovery potential opens up tremendously. Um, you, you brought up, uh, being uh, sort of a first generation academic in your family and i know that in in my family including my extended family i was the very first person to uh get a phd degree uh and that was not only exciting for me but it made me feel like uh like a bit of an ambassador to my siblings and my cousins and their kids that like hey uh i can do this and you can do this too um can i ask you uh if you have a message that you would like to share with people who maybe maybe they don't have anyone in their family or their community that they can look to who's become an academic. If, if they're interested in becoming a, a scientist or a researcher or, uh, or someone who just studies what we can know and what we do know and how to improve those frontiers of what we know for a living.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, I do a lot of mentorship and a, a significant amount of my mentees um, are, are first gen students. And, and one of the things I always tell them is, you know, all you really need at the end of the day is just a little bit of tenacity, um, kind of the, the unwillingness to accept failure. Maybe you did fail something, maybe something was hard for you, but the ability and the drive um, and the willingness to get back up and try again is honestly the most critical thing to get through this. Um, It doesn't matter how good you are at taking exams. It doesn't matter how well you remember all the vocabulary, because at the end of the day, unless you're, what is it, Mark Watney on Mars, um, you're never really going to need any of this information in a vacuum. You know, we work together. There's the Internet. There's textbooks. There's classes. There's your colleagues, your peers, your researchers. Um, You have so much support. So at the end of the day, it's not so much how much you've memorized and how much you know, and it's way more how much you're willing to keep trying and keep learning. Um, And so if you are one of those people who loves to see how things work, um, pull them apart and put them back together, or you're just constantly Googling things, um, I have a set of friends who, uh, what do they call me? They call me Websters because I just love learning things and always have little weird facts about stuff. Um, You're exactly the type of person that belongs in this space and that we need in this space. We need people who are just endlessly curious um, and willing to keep trying. Uh, So, you know, don't let anybody deter you if that's your dream. Um, I will say it is difficult to kind of convey that dream to family sometimes, um, and maybe taking the time to understand that and and work on that can help. Um, But there's also lots of community within academia, even for us first-gen students um, and people who are minoritized. We're here. Um, We're here to support.
0: You know, I I think that's a really important message. It also, uh, you know, reminds me of some things. Makes me think of some things that I wish I knew when I was starting graduate school. That I uh, I thankfully was able to figure out while I was still in graduate school. But I think we're really essential to my success. And one of those things is that, you know, when you come into a graduate program, particularly if you don't know uh, what to expect, or particularly if you don't have exactly the same educational background as everyone else in the program Mm -hmm. has, uh, you're going to be made aware immediately of... Uh, the ways in which you uh, sort of have shortcomings, like, oh, I don't know how to mathematically solve this class of problems, or oh, uh, I never learned this technique, I never learned uh, the Cauchy condensation test, I don't know what the Stark <laughs> effect is, I don't know, right? You're going to have these gaps in your knowledge that you discover. Uh, but one of the wonderful things is. Uh, You can learn this, like anything you don't know, you can go out and learn it and you can study it and you can develop the good habits and you can solve the problems that you need to in order to become adept with it and learn how to use it. And one of the things that I wish people had emphasized to me when I was younger, um, that I now emphasize to young people that I have a chance to mentor is nobody cares in any course or endeavor, uh, what you knew at the start of it. People only care what you can do by the end. People only care what you come away with. What do you know? What can you accomplish? What problems can you solve? If you can learn how to do it, then that's what's important. It doesn't matter where you started the race. It matters where you are when that race is over and the next race starts. Um, and the, the other thing that I wish I knew is um, in terms of support, So much of that support that people are looking for is already there uh, in terms of a community. Um, The other graduate students that are in the program with you, most of them are going to work in groups or teams to solve problems and share knowledge and, um, you know, figure out how to do the things they don't know how to do and go through the experience of learning even more as you show other people your way to solve a problem that you know how to solve. And all of these things are so valuable and so important that uh, I think people who don't know what to expect in graduate school or don't know what to expect when you go through the pursuit of higher education um they don't know that these are the steps you should be taking and i think that uh i think that knowing that you belong there and knowing that you have just as much of a place there as anyone else there uh is something that if i could gift that mindset to everyone who came into a program, I would, because I feel like that mindset is essential uh, to succeeding in graduate school. There are so many people who make the mistake of trying to do it all in a vacuum. And it's just such, it's playing the game on an unnecessarily high level of difficulty that I would just recommend. No, like, this is your community. And if you have elements in that community that make you feel like you're unwelcome, you stay away from those elements and you go towards those elements where you are welcomed because this community needs you uh, even more than you need the community.
1: I totally agree that, especially that last part, um, just about working intentionally to build a community around yourself um, It's something I find myself talking a lot about with people when they're like, okay, like, what do you suggest I do to get through this, this grad program? Like, the first thing you should do is build community because that's the only way you're going to get through it. Um, whether it, like, comes down to exactly what you said, just helping each other out, maybe sharpening your communi- your communication skills by teaching other people your method, um, learning how to speak to faculty as your colleagues by going to office hours and just kind of humbling yourself and asking for help and and, you know, maybe even questioning their methods and things like that. Um, these are all other, you know, second and tertiary skills that you end up developing because you were active in building a community around yourself. And the other thing you said that was really interesting to me that I just wanted to briefly remark on is you mentioned the, you know, no one cares where you started. They just care what you come out, like how you finish, how you came out of it. And that's a really, really important piece. I think we get so fixated, especially in, you know, the society we live in, on these timelines of well, I need to graduate in this amount of time. I need to do my advancement in this amount of time. I need to be a, a scientist or a faculty, or whatever, by this t- this point, and I need to have this many papers. Like we're always looking for equations, and by we, I mean me. I mean I was this person. I was <laughs> I was one hundred percent this person at the start of grad school, and it just made me sick um, at the end of the day because my learning process wasn't completely linear and it, it, it almost never is for most people. So many things are, it's a curve and allowing yourself that grace and understanding of, okay, this is my first time publishing a paper. Of course, it's not going to be an easy referee report. my first time or, or a breeze or whatever, um, things like that. Or this is my first time taking thermodynamics and it's at a grad level. Of course, it's not going to come easily. Maybe I need to take it a second time. So just letting go of that timeline, um, in, in, in lieu of instead supporting your goals, your learning goals, your your personal goals, is way more important. You'll be happier, you'll be healthier, um, you'll have a, a more resilient and growth mindset, which is super critical in, in this work, and And that's what will really get you through it, is just being able to be there for the work and for the learning experience um, and the community, not necessarily for the rush to a degree, because inevitably, um, in general, if you're on a path to rush to get a degree, a PhD is probably not for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like it is with anything. Um, There are aspects of the timeline that you can control. But there are Mm -hmm. also factors about the timeline that have nothing to do with you. Um, Like, even if you control all the things you can control for, uh, you are not in control of whether a pandemic hits the world. You are not in control of whether you get ill. You are not in control of... Uh, I had this happen to a friend of mine from graduate school, Uh, she was going to do some research for her uh, PhD dissertation, and she needed to get Keck data for it. And so she applied for observing time, and she got observing time, and she flew to Hawaii and went up to the telescopes, that's back when you did those things. Um, And Mm -hmm. she went to take data, and she had three nights of observation. And the first night she had clouds and the second night she had clouds and the third night she had four arc second seeing, which for those of you Ooh. familiar with Keck, that is terrible seeing It is <laughs> yeah. not good enough to get data. Uh, and that three night observing delayed her a year because she had yeah. to apply for observing again. And she had to wait a year because it would be another year until the objects she wanted to observe were in the right part of the sky to be able to observe mm-hmm. them. Um, and she did. She graduated just fine. She got her data. It was good data, and she graduated. Um, but these are the sorts of things, just as you can't control the weather, you don't get to control all aspects of the timeline on which you graduate. So control the things you can control, and the ones you can't, you have to learn to roll with them. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you have that community, though, if you have that support, um, you will get there eventually, and it will be worth it when you do. That's right. Ariana, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I'm so grateful that you've been able to join us and share this wide-ranging discussion with us of galaxies, the early and nearby universe, sort of what we'll discover with web, the Cosmos web program, how it uh, interfaces with ALMA and other wavelength observatories and mentorship. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And thank you for giving us such a treat. I'd like to ask you, uh, before we wrap things up, do you have any final messages that you would like to share with our listeners out there?
1: I think most of the, mentor, the the messages I gave about mentorship, building a community, are really really critical. Um, I think if there's anyone else out there considering, you know, going back to school to get a degree, or pursuing this in general, um, just know that you know you you can find support, and your end goal does not have to be to be a professor or anything like that. Um, you can absolutely be involved in amazing science um, with or without James Webb. Um, just by getting your bachelor's or your master's and, and joining one of the tech teams or doing science communication, there's so many paths to being connected to this amazing science. And I just want folks to understand that there's not only one way um, to keep, keep in touch um, and be involved in this world. And wow, we really did cover a lot of topics.
0: <laughs> we really did. I, I think this is one of my favorite episodes. So thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. And uh, I guess I'm reminded of the Rocky Horror uh, tagline, don't dream it, be it. Um <laughs> So thank you, Ariana, for joining us, and thanks to all of you out there for listening in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters, so I'd like to shout out to everyone who donates to us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... Brian Kinsella, Chad Marlar, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, John Methot, John Van Balaguyen, Matt Conroe, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Sea Green Mango, Stefan Bernager, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benesh Tech, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Kileopu, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojtchuk, Randall Slimak, Rich Baker, Sean Foley, The Human, Vlad Pashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parik, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zapeta, Ben Head, Bob Shire. Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Ittings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, Darren Redfern, David Hibbits, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, George Jeff Boutel, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbita, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shaw, Sam's Herzakian, Steve Schaber, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Tommy White, Weller Tractor Salvage, and William Van Den Huvel. Thanks to all of you out there for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.